certainly it is widely known that uh, our society has really undergone something traumatic with the COVID-19 pandemic. And in particular, our economy has taken such a savage blow. And many, many people have been thrown out of work or find themselves uh, having to kind of change course professionally, vocationally for one reason or another. And maybe at this point in time, find themselves trying to re-enter the workforce or trying to launch new ideas uh, at a point in time when, again, all of us are uh, to one degree or another sort of in a rebuilding mode. One book that may be of, of great help to certain people is a book called Backable, The Surprising Truth About What Makes Someone Take a Chance on You. And uh, this is a book that offers a lot of helpful advice particularly for someone who is going to be uh, facing a crucial job interview. But even beyond that, uh, those that in one way or another need to find allies, supporters willing to back them uh, in one sort of event, uh, of venture or another. Uh, I really appreciate a lot of the wisdom and concrete advice that is offered in this book by its author, uh, Sunil Gupta, who, among other things, teaches innovation at Harvard University and uh, has offered his expertise and advice uh, to a number of, 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 of different companies and has launched some very impressive ideas of his own. And we're going to be spending the next few minutes talking to him about his book, again called Backable, The Surprising Truth About What Makes Someone Take a Chance on You. Sunil Gupta, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Greg, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I have to start with this intriguing line from your biography. Uh, tell us about teaching innovation at Harvard University. Uh, maybe give us some sense of the context within, we, in, within which you talk about and teach about innovation. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because innovation kind of almost comes across as one of those things that either you have or you don't. You're either innovative or you're not. But I think the truth is that we all have great ideas. We, we are all creative people. I mean, I think it's just human beings who are coming up with new ways of doing things. And, and that doesn't have to be a startup, a technology company. It could be something you want to do in your company, in your church, in your community. Um, but I, I think that we tend to talk about sort of the idea creation part of innovation. But we sometimes miss the fact that innovation is just as much about getting other people to believe in that idea. There, there are plenty of ideas out there that end up going nowhere, and they, and they don't go nowhere because they're not good ideas. They're actually great ideas, but we don't get other people to believe in them. And if other people don't believe in them, then they kind of die out on the vine. And that's really what I focus my time teaching. Hmm. It's interesting uh, to think about how that plays out in uh, a lot of different parts of your book, but in particular, uh, a series of seven steps that you lay out in terms of, of what it really takes in order to, to get somebody to, to take a chance on you. And the first of those seven uh, is about convincing yourself first. And this plays into uh, a theme that is recurrent in your book, that of conviction. That conviction matters a whole lot more than charisma. First of all, talk for a moment about the assumptions that a lot of us make about the importance of charisma, that it's uh, the person who is most charismatic as they walk into the room that is going to get their idea uh, bought or supported 
versus this idea of conviction being so much more important. Yeah, and, and you know, I really, I had the same assumption when I began writing this book five years ago, uh, you know, spending time with a wide range of people, Oscar-winning filmmakers, celebrity chefs, military leaders, founders of iconic companies. And one of the things I assumed that I would find is that they were all going to have a certain, you know, style of communication about them. They were all going to be very charismatic people and make use of hand gestures and eye contact and pacing. Uh, but I, I did not find that to be the case, Greg. I mean, that there were there were certainly, you know, some some people who who were much more extroverted and, and gregarious, but but there were quite a few that were not. And you know, if you want a, just a quick example of that, go look up the number one most popular TED Talk of all time. It's a guy named Sir Ken Robinson. It's over 65 million views. And what you might be surprised to find is that it's a very un-TED-like presentation. He's got one hand in his pocket. He sort of meanders on and off script. He stands with a bit of a slouch. But, but you know, you believe every word that he's saying. It's a brilliant talk. And as it turns out, it's not charisma that makes a person convincing. It's conviction. Backable people take the time to convince themselves first, and then they let that conviction shine through with whatever style it is that feels most natural to them. I really appreciate that perspective, especially because, as you, as you talk about in your factor, we, uh, in your book, you, we sometimes talk about when, when somebody just sort of has it, in quotation marks, uh, it being this kind of, magical mysterious quality that draws people to them and it just makes them uh open up their wallets or open up their hearts and 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 sort of go with them whatever it is and and um someone might very likely feel like they just weren't born with whatever it is that it factor and you're talking about something that's in a sense much more tangible and in a sense much more attainable by just about anybody yeah, I mean, exactly, Greg. I mean, I, I, I felt like being backable was either one of those qualities you had or you didn't. You know, you just had that sort of it mysterious quality or in a, and you were born with it or, or, or not. But, but the thing that I found is that after studying these extraordinary people and rewind, kind of rewinding the tape on their career and really look at sort of the early, early days, what I found is that they, they didn't start out backable. They weren't born backable. They, they made themselves backable. And it's evidenced by the failures, the mistakes, the rejections that they faced along the way, but there were a set of qualities that they learned. And, and, and that's good news, because it means that, that any of us can, can follow a series of steps and make ourselves more backable. And you don't have to be a celebrity. You don't have to be a CEO. Uh, no matter what it is you're trying to do, no one makes it alone. We need hiring managers. We need teams. We need, we need colleagues. We need even friends and family to believe in us. Hmm. Uh, in this list of, of seven steps, uh, in some respects, the most intriguing is the third, uh, which is find an earned secret or some sort of hidden insight. Tell us more about this. Yeah, one of the people that I spent time with for the book was, was Brian Grazier, who's an Oscar-winning filmmaker and you know, television show creator. He's, 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 he's won over 130 Emmys, dozens of Oscars, but he also invests in companies and he runs large teams. And so he's sort of you know, a backer across all these different areas. 
and I remember sitting in his waiting room. This is this is pre-pandemic. I was sitting in his sort of lobby waiting room with all these people who are getting ready to pitch him on something or the other. And you could just tell, Greg, that the, the, the tone inside the lobby was very nervous. People were anxious about what they were about to go do. And so when I went to, back to go see Brian, I said, hey, if I could give everybody out there one piece of advice, what would it be? And he thought about it for a moment, and he said, bring me something that I can't easily find on Google. Give me something that is not easily Googleable." And I found that so fascinating because as, as I talked to more and more decision makers, hiring managers, investors, what I, what I found is that, is that keep great presentations, great interviews, great pitches tend to be based on an insight, some type of insight that you were able to go out and find and bring into the room. And that insight is, is not always obvious. It's something that you've done by talking to customers. You've test, you, you test drove competitors' products. You've had conversations that most people in your shoes wouldn't have. And oh, let me just give you an example. I, I was talking to someone the other day who was applying for a job at a social media company, and she's a mother, and she's returning to the workforce. And the trick of it is that she, she didn't really use the product. It's very much a Gen Z-focused product. But instead of just doing some, some, some research online to prepare for the interview, she interviewed every single one of her daughter's friends, asked them what they liked about the product, what they didn't like about the product, what were these moments that sort of gave them joy. And then she had them send her screenshots of their experience, these, these little moments. So then she takes this gallery of screenshots on her phone into this interview, which is over Zoom, and she's showing this hiring manager this research that she's collected. And this hiring manager is so impressed that not only does she get the job, but right in the middle of the interview, he ends up patching in one of their designers so that that person can get some of the insights that she's collected. Now, this didn't take a lot of time. It was about 90 minutes cumulative of her time to do all this, to do all this research. But she was able to walk in with something that felt unique, that felt insightful. She walked in with an earned secret. We're speaking with Sunil Gupta about his book, Backable, The Surprising Truth About What Makes Someone Take a Chance on You. It's a book that offers all kinds of valuable advice, first of all, for someone who might be pitching an idea which requires backing, but it's also uh, full of suggestions that could also be uh, very helpful for somebody that finds themselves in desperate need of a new job or is shifting uh shifting direction in their career path or vocational choices and uh, and uh, in that unsettling situation there is a lot of advice in this book that can really play a, a huge a, a huge difference including something as simple as playing exhibition matches in which you tell us that it, it really makes sense to practice uh, when there the stakes are low or there's no stakes whatsoever versus when you step into a situation where the stakes are really high. That can make the difference between success and failure. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's easy to look at people who seem to be gifted, gifted speakers or really, really talented inside a room and just assume that they're naturals. Uh, what I found is that typically they're the product of lots and lots of practice that happens behind the scenes. And these are what I call exhibition matches. These are low-stakes practice sessions before you get into a high-stakes situation. And these low-stakes practice sessions, they can be played with anybody. You know, these are practice sessions you could do with friends, you could do with family. 
but there's a couple of keys. You know, one is that you you have to do the actual version. So there's no director's commentary when you're when you're giving someone a, an exhibition match. You're not saying, "Well, this is what I plan on doing, and then I, and then I would do this, and I would do that." No, you're, you're giving them the real version because it's through giving the real version that we get the real feedback and the experience that we need to be to be comfortable inside the room. The second the second tip that I would that I would offer you is that when you're done giving an exhibition match, don't ask the person, "Hey, what did you think of that?" That's the typical question that we tend to ask after we share an idea or give somebody a, a rehearsal. We, we say, hey, what'd you think? But that very rarely gets us the feedback that we actually need to make ourselves better. So a much, a much more precise question to ask is, what were the moments that stood out to you most? Because what that does is it really allows that person to reflect on, hey, like, here's what's working for me. And now you get a sense of, like, that's what's resonating, and you also get a sense of what's not, and you know where to sort of double down your efforts. Mm. But it's through playing these low-stakes practice sessions that you get the confidence and comfort to really be comfortable inside a room. And again, backable people, you know, we, we think they're naturals, but they're, they're, they're almost always the product of lots and lots of these practice sessions. Mm. I also appreciate in this list of seven steps that really important is to let go of your ego, that in these moments it's not about you and it's not about how great you are, but it's about somebody out there that needs your idea and is going to benefit from your idea. I also appreciate the fact that you advise people to not just accentuate the positive, which I think is a mistake that is very commonly made, but that you need to steer into the objections, uh, into your own weaknesses. Yeah. You need to own them, embrace them, and, and fold them into, into, into a, 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 a truthful, honest accounting of who you are and what you have to offer. I think people tend not to be comfortable with the idea of owning their own weaknesses. Why do you see that as being so valuable? Yeah, and it's because it's because it's because I think that those are already things that the other person typically knows. If you're walking in with an idea, you know that isn't fully complete. Well, chances are that the person sitting on the other side of the table already knows that. If you're a job can job candidate who you know doesn't have all of the qualifications that they're looking for. Well, chances are that this hiring manager already knows that. And rather than having that just nag at that person, it's better for you to bring it up yourself and really talk about that openly. You know, what I found is that these backable moments, they're never monologues. They're never, they're, you, don't, you don't sort of go into an interview, recite your resume, drop the mic, and, and leave the room. It's a, it's a series of interactions. And if you can steer into the objections that a person might have. Your answers may not be perfect, but what it does is it allows them to then sort of it, it, it not have that thing nag at them anymore so they can actually tune in and pay attention to the stronger parts of your idea or your candidacy or whatever you're there to pitch. Hmm. I want to make sure that we give you a chance to talk about the four C's, the fact that uh, this really underscores <laughs> the point that uh, – we don't succeed on our own, <laughs> and that often it is a circle of the C's that can really make a difference uh, in whether we are successful or whether we ultimately fail. Uh, explain to our listeners uh, what or who the four C's are. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it, it is really interesting to me, Greg, because 
as I, as I started to study backable people, what I realized is that almost always they had a circle of people around them and, and you know, trusted group of people that they could go to with their ideas or, or talk about when it, when it came to career changes or applying for a new job. There was always a trusted circle of people around them. It became very, very important, and they would really nurture these relationships. And as I started to really kind of examine these circles, what I realized is that there were four different types of personalities that tended to belong in each of these circles. And typically, these, each of these personalities was played by a different, different person, and I call these the four Cs. And the first C is your collaborator. So this is somebody in your life who, you know, when you're with them, you almost feel like you're in a musical jam session. They're kind of building on top of your ideas. They're always sort of expanding you and having you think, like, bigger about things. They're using language like yes and, and they're a great person to go to with a new creative idea. The second is your coach. And your coach is different than your collaborator because while your collaborator is really thinking about whether your idea is good for the market or for the company, your coach is really thinking about, is your idea good for you? Does it actually fit you and who you are? Because there's a plenty of good ideas out there that might be good for other people to run with. But would you feel passionate enough to want to run with this for sometimes the years that it will take to get a new idea off the ground? And so your coach is somebody who knows you intimately well. My, my wife is my coach. You know, she, I go to her with ideas all the time, and she says, you know, I think that's good, but I just can't see you wanting to work on this for years. And that's exactly the kind of feedback that I need. So your coach. The third C is your cheerleader. And I know it might sound a little sappy, but we always need someone who we can call and know that we can get that last bit of juice before we walk into the room. You know, one of the people I feature in the book is, is a woman named Ellen Levy, who Fast Company magazine named the most connected woman in Silicon Valley. She's got members of Congress and Fortune 500 CEOs in her Rolodex, but the person that she calls before she walks into a room is her mom. She calls her mom for that last, that last bit of confidence, that last bit of juice. So that's her cheerleader. The fourth C, I think, though, is, is probably the most important, which is your critic. But I like to call this person your cheddar. And I call this person your cheddar because if you've ever seen the movie Eight Mile with Eminem, you know, Eminem is surrounded by a circle of friends in the movie, and they're constantly building him up. But there's one friend named Cheddar who, who's always kind of poking holes in his ideas. And what we realize throughout the film is that it's Cheddar that really helps Eminem get prepared for the stage. And that's important because we all kind of have a Cheddar in our lives, somebody who's kind of nitpicking us or poking holes or pointing out our blind spots. And what we tend to do is sort of push that cheddar away because that person can be kind of annoying sometimes. But if it's truly somebody who has your best interest at heart and yet is still willing to tell you the truth, you want to embrace that person as much as possible because they're the ones who are going to help you get prepared for the room. Because as it turns out, most backers have a cheddar type of personality and it's cheddar who's going to help you get ready for that moment. I just love that. I love so much of what you offer up in this book, again titled Backable, The Surprising Truth About What Makes Someone Take a Chance on You, published by Little Brown and Company, a book that could not be more timely with so many people uh, finding themselves in 
in situations in which they need to change course, need to kind of step out uh, in new adventures. And uh, this book offers a lot of, of, of important advice and help. Uh, it's author Sunil Gupta. Sunil Gupta, thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show, and thanks for giving the world this intriguing book. Best wishes to you. Greg, thanks so much for having me. You're listening to The Morning Show on WGTDHD, your gateway to public radio. I'm Gregory Berg. Earth Day is coming up soon, and Gateway Technical College, as always, is celebrating Earth Day in a really big way. And actually, they are doing so uh, in a couple of somewhat unique ways, uh, thanks to the restrictions that remain in place uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, But Gateway is not canceling its Earth Day celebration by any means. No. As a matter of fact, it is combining its Earth Day celebration with EcoFest into what promises to be a wonderful event on Saturday, April 17th. And Abby Ford is uh, joining me on the morning show, on this portion of the morning show, uh, to talk about uh, what is planned. She is manager of community relations and communications for Gateway Technical College. Abby Ford, we welcome you to the morning show. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad that uh, you can be uh, part of our program and can tell our listeners about what's going to be happening on April 17th. So first of all, uh, explain the combination of Earth Day and EcoFest and if and if these events have been combined before or if this is uh, kind of a new thing. Sure. So EcoFest is typically our environmental event that we hold in Racine in March, and Earth Day is our environmental event that we hold in Kenosha and Elkhorn in April. And typically they're separate events, but this year due to the pandemic and the fact that we are taking part of the event online, we decided to combine the two. Um, Hopefully just for this year, we hope next year we'll be back to our normal um, situations with EcoFest in March and our Earth Day celebrations in April. Um, But this year, what we're planning to do is on on April 17th from 9 a.m. until 11 a.m. at the Elkhorn, Kenosha, and Racine Gateway campuses. We will have some drive-through activities where people can, they'll remain in their cars. They can come and pick up some really great free giveaway items. They can also drop off electronics for recycling and drop off some donations to local food pantries. And then in the afternoon from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m., we'll have a virtual expo where they can come and enjoy online presentations. They can view virtual vendor booths and connect with local exhibitors and community organizations that are environmentally based. And they can also view an environmental art exhibit from the Vital Art Project in Racine that we'll have as part of our online event as well. Fantastic. So it is a way then to uh, uh, for people to participate while remaining uh safely physically distanced from from one another uh and yet uh, and yet everything can can go on uh let's talk a moment about the the virtual expo which is really a cool idea so virtual workshops virtual presentations and and even virtual exhibitor booths <laughs> that people can yeah. visit which is really an, an an intriguing uh concept uh tell our listeners about uh maybe two or three of the the workshops that they might find especially intriguing sure we are having um we're fortunate to have a lot of great community partners that have a lot of expertise in areas and we also at gateway have a really great horticulture program and an arbor culture program that do a lot of work 
in, you know, environmentally based practices as well. So some of our presentations that I think people will really enjoy this year, um, we'll have a garden starting presentation from Gateway's Horticulture Program. And that actually will tie in. If you come to our drive-through activities in the morning and pick up a free garden kit, that will be put together by the Horticulture Program. And then you can join us in the afternoon for our garden starting presentation. And that will kind of walk you through what you received and some tips for planting and getting started and a schedule. Um, so it's really kind of a wraparound service um, that's really exciting to offer. Um, we'll also have a presentation on renewable energy um, from some local experts, as well as um, a homegrown food recipe presentation from a local co-op in Walworth County. Very good. Uh, as far as the drive-through activities, I know that at least some of those are really designed uh, with, uh, with young people, with children in mind. Uh, just remind our listeners about some of what will be offered uh, in, in the drive-through activities that will be of interest to kids. Sure. Yeah, we'll have the garden kits that I mentioned earlier, which are really a family activity. You can plant them as an adult or you can, if you have children, you can involve your children in that as well and really get them um, started with, you know, what it's like to care for your outdoor area. Um, we'll also be offering free activity kits for kids that will include um, the materials and instructions for some different activities um, that they can take home and do at home. Um, our Center for Sustainable Living at Gateway is assembling a lot of those kits, and they will also have a virtual booth in the online expo where um, Callie, who's our director of the S Center for Sustainable Living, um, will have video instructions and other ways to engage children as well so that it's kind of a two-parter. Um, we'll also have electronics recycling drop-off, which is always a really popular piece that we offer at EcoFest and Earth Day, and we're excited to be able to offer that again this year. Um, and with that, they really accept a wide range of electronics. Um, no TVs or no CRT monitors, but pretty much everything else. Um, you can find a list on our website at gtc.edu slash earthday. Um, and then we're also having a donation drive for unopened, unexpired, non-perishable food and hygiene items. And that will benefit the Shalom Center in Kenosha, Halo in Racine, and the Walworth County Food and Diaper Bank. Very good. I assume that the drive-through activities are just something where people just drive up with, uh, with no pre-registration necessary. But I don't think that's the case with the virtual expo. Correct. Yep, for the drive-through activities, you can just pull on up to the Elkhorn, Kenosha, or Racine campuses. Um, in Elkhorn, the drive-through will be located between the north and south buildings on the Elkhorn campus. In Kenosha, it will be located um, by the Pike Creek Horticulture Center and in the Madrigano Center parking lot. Um, and then in Racine, it will be in the large parking lot down by the lake. Um, so that you can just come up to. You don't have to do any pre-registration. Um, for the online portion of the event, you do need to pre-register. Um, if you visit our website at gtc.edu slash earthday, um, you can find the details about all of everything you'd want to know about either of the events, as well as the link to register for the virtual expo. Um, and all you have to do to register for that is you click on our link. Um, we're using a platform called Excel Events. You'll see a link on our website. 
Um, you click on that link, you click the register button that will appear on the page that you're taken to, and then I believe you just have to enter your name and your email address and that's it. And then you'll get a reminder the day before the event. And then the other great thing is once you register, you'll be able to actually access the event for 30 days after it's done. So all of the presentations will be recorded, all of the vendor booths will remain up for you to continue coming back and viewing the resources. Um, so the event will be live on April 17th. Our, a lot of our vendors will be online and interactive within their booths. But then from April 18th through May 17th, you can come back and view the recordings and continue viewing the resources that mm. are up. Which is such a great idea, especially if if there's a presentation that involves something that you want to do and you want to <laughs> go back and double check that you have all the details uh, really correct, that you're remembering everything properly and and then can do a good job. So that's that's great that exactly. that remains open. And uh, mm -hmm. and this this is, however, free. We need to underscore that. Even though people do need yes. to register for it, it is of no cost to anybody. So that's terrific. Uh, so explain who has made all of this possible. So um, we have a really great planning committee at Gateway that um, typically plans our Earth Day events. And then we also partner with Green and Greater Racine and in Racine to plan the EcoFest events. They were very involved this year as well. And then we're very fortunate to have Snap-on as a sponsor as well to help make this possible. Great. So we hope everyone will mark their calendars accordingly for Saturday, April 17th for the combined EcoFest and Earth Day celebration uh, with uh, drive-through activities on the Elkhorn, Kenosha, and Racine campuses uh, from 9 to 11 Saturday morning, mm -hmm. and then the virtual expo, which goes from 11 till 1, and we do want to remind people that they do need to uh, register for that. It is free registration. And uh, Abby, remind everybody of, of where they can find more information, including the link to register for the virtual expo. Yes, um, please visit our website at gtc.edu slash earthday, and you'll be able to find all of the information there as well. Abby Ford is Manager of Community Relations and Communications for Gateway Technical College. Thank you so much for your time, and thanks for your hard work on this important event. Thank you. You're listening to The Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. To finish out the hour, here's a fun interview from The Morning Show archives that dates all the way back to 2004. Enjoy. Certainly one of the most distinctive voices in recent memory is that of Johnny Cash. And uh, fans of Johnny Cash uh, can celebrate his uh, incredible life and career in a beautiful new book, uh, which is called Cash, by the editors of Rolling Stone magazine. And uh, the editor of this book is uh, Jason Fine, who is assistant managing editor for Rolling Stone magazine. And uh, he is also the editor for this book, which gathers together uh, the efforts of a number of, of different staffers from a Rolling Stone magazine and uh, fans of Johnny Cash, family members and so on, uh, all pooling their efforts to uh, pay tribute to this unique figure in American music. And uh, I'm really glad that Jason Fine can join us for a few minutes to uh, talk about this project and about Johnny Cash. Jason Fine, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. 
Uh, I'm sure that it was not an, uh, not a difficult decision, in a sense, to uh, decide to pay tribute to Johnny Cash in this way. Although it's interesting, we I think a lot of us think of Rolling Stone as a magazine of of the current generation, a magazine of the young, and of course. Johnny Cash, in a sense, is none of those things, and yet connected with a, a wide range of, of, of people. Tell us about the, the initial decision that Rolling Stone would be part of a tribute like this. Well, the, the first real decision that we made was, was when Johnny Cash passed uh, to put him on the cover. Uh, and the reason we made that decision was really for two reasons. Uh, one, because over the past 15 years since, since 19, well, since about 1993, the last 12 years of his life, he he really had such an amazing resurgence, and his music connected with so many young people. Um, it was really quite incredible for a man of 65 years old to come back and to interpret songs by Nine Inch Nails and Soundgarden and Beck, and to not be doing it in any sort of way of trying to catch up with the times, but simply in terms of making those songs his own. And it really appealed to to such a different audience than he ever had before, and that was very much uh, the Rolling Stone audience. Uh, and if you went to one of his concerts, you know, you would see all kinds of young people with tattoos and piercings. You know, this wasn't, this wasn't just old country music fans. So that was one reason, is that we wrote about him a lot in the last 10 years of his life. The other reason is that throughout his career, uh, when he was making, you know, even the most Nashville-oriented country music, Johnny Cash had an attitude that was really all about what rock and roll ever meant to be. Um, from his first recordings at Sun Studios, the same place that Elvis Presley started, Cash was rock and roll. You know, he was a rebel. He had an attitude. Uh, he had a stance and a posture and a sound that all really had so much to do with everything that came after it you know you could talk to uh, any of the rock stars today you know bono or uh you know uh eddie vetter or anybody and they got a lot of what they have now from from johnny cash do i remember bono's contribution to this book uh includes one of the great lines about uh compared to johnny cash the rest of us are all sissies yeah exactly um you know that that is what he said and and i think you know, people really felt that, and, and not just in a way of, of, of that Johnny Cash was macho, but in a way that Johnny Cash set a set of values for himself and a way of living for himself, and he stuck to it. Tell us how you were able to gather together all that is in this book called Cash. Well, the idea for this book that I had was that Everyone knew Johnny Cash, the icon, you know, the man in black, uh, Cash, you know, this sort of larger-than-life presence. And when I met Johnny Cash about a year before he died, what I was struck with was sort of the man, uh, him in his home with his family, being a guy dealing with problems and dealing with illness and singing songs, and that he wasn't just this guy in a spotlight with a guitar slung over his back. And... When I wrote that story and I started to read all the other things about Johnny Cash, I realized that that side of him hadn't really been expressed. Uh, and shortly after my, my piece came out, I got a letter from one of his daughters, Cindy Cash, 
saying kind of the same thing, that she had never read about this side of her father in print, but it's the side of her father that she's always known. And so that sort of became the inspiration. And after uh, Johnny Cash died, I wrote Cindy a letter and said that this is what I wanted to do, and I wanted her blessing, and I also wanted her help. And not only did she help me, but all of his four daughters helped me, and his son, John Carter Cash, helped me. And so it just became this kind of very personal thing um, where we got all these kinds of great photos and great stories and things that no one had ever really seen before about him, you know, playing with his grandchildren and fishing and, 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 and all this other stuff, you know, aside from just the amazingly great music that he made throughout his career. One of the uh, adjectives which really comes up again and again as various people talk about Johnny Cash and pay tribute to him in these pages uh, will be words like tenacity. And, and uh, that seems to, to stand out in the minds of many, whether it's one of his daughters talking about how he would sit for hours cranking their old-fashioned ice cream maker, or, or if we're talking about sort of a bigger picture, uh, such as uh, coming back from serious substance abuse and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Uh, he had tenacity if he had nothing else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He definitely did. Uh, you know, he had a lot of, conflicts in his life and a lot of hardship in his life, um, both, you know, in terms of his own self-destructive behavior as well as things that he couldn't control. But he always had this this force of will uh, that everyone described to me. Even when I went to meet him, you know, he was, he was much more ill than I expected him to be. Uh, he could barely walk. He couldn't see very well. But I swear, it took about 15 minutes for him to convince me that, you know, this was Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, a bad dude. And uh, even at that age, I mean, he really had this this force about him. Well, uh, and in your he knew how to use that. And when in your forward, you talk about uh, meeting him less than a year before his death, and I think you your first attempt at an interview, if I recall, uh, does not go well, and you you kind of cut it short because he just seems to be so shaky and exhausted and really unable to effectively communicate, and then. Isn't it Johnny Cash himself who calls you maybe that night at the stu- at the, at your hotel and invites you to come back, uh, promising that he'll be feeling better? And indeed, you come back to find a rejuvenated Johnny Cash uh, in extraordinarily fine form. I was literally just about ready to go to the airport, um, you know, and I was very <clears throat> upset and disappointed, and and I and I even felt as if I had pushed him a little too far, um, and. I was worried about him. He didn't seem well. And he did call, and he asked me to come back the next morning. So I did. And he was still the same guy. He was still uh, uh, not feeling well. But he was determined to do this interview, and he was determined that he had things to say. And even to the point that he returned to points that he was trying to make the day before but wasn't able to. And he said, you know, what I was trying to say yesterday was this. And it was it was extraordinary to experience. We're speaking with Jason Fine. He is the editor of a book called Cash from the editors of Rolling Stone magazine. Jason Fine is assistant managing editor uh, for the magazine. And uh, 
Jason Fine not only has uh, edited this book, but uh, there are some contributions by him specifically. Jason Fine, in fact, one of the most interesting chapters in this book, I think, is called Home Sweet Home in the Studio with John Carter Cash, uh, in which you take us inside uh, the sort of unlikely, uh, the unlikely recording studio, which served as uh, the, the, the site of, of Johnny Cash's recording comeback in the 1990s. Tell us, uh, tell our listeners what I'm talking about. Well, you know, where Johnny Cash lives in outside of Nashville on a beautiful lake in this kind of great sprawling mansion, uh, not, not fancy, but, but very um, but big and, and, and sort of in a, in a country music style. Uh, round over a lake, but out behind that that mansion is a bunch of property, about 50 acres of these kind of sloping hills where he's always had a menagerie of animals. There's uh, goats back there and pigs back there, and there were some emus at one time, and uh, even two buffaloes. And there's a little tiny cabin, a little one-room wooden cabin on the property where that Johnny built so he and his wife June Carter Cash would have somewhere to go and hang out on the weekends. And in the 90s, he started to go over there and, and uh, just sing songs and just hang out. And he eventually put in a very small recording studio into that cabin. And that's where, at the beginning of his comeback in the 90s, he began to record all of his demos uh, for, for the albums that he made with Rick Rubin, the four American recordings. As he got sicker and was unable to travel to Los Angeles to record the final versions, they just improved the equipment, and he recorded much of his final album in that one-room cabin. Uh, he also recorded about 50 more songs after that last album, which we haven't yet heard, but we will. Uh, and it was uh, a place where he could just go and feel comfortable and uh, take as many takes as he want and just sing into a little microphone and, and hang out with his son, who uh, became one of his uh, his engineer and also one of his co-producers. Uh, and it was just a real idyllic little place to go record, you know. Um, he would have guests come back there and play with him. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers would go back there uh, and, and hang around and barbecue and drink beer, and, and they would all sing songs. Well, and you have a, a beautiful photograph of this... Um... Uh, of this one-room cabin, and I mean, this is a real cabin, and it's straight out of the Waltons or Deliverance or something like that. Well, I mean, on the prairie, yeah, I yeah. I mean, it's uh, and and one would never never dream that uh, if you stepped into that front door, <laughs> what one might find there, and the and the kind of important recordings that that, that were made. And it's true, uh, I mean, it's very funny because the cabin is is, um, I mean, even inside there is recording equipment, but you know, it's just a it's just a wooden cabin with a big hearth and. Um, there's a little air conditioner in there, and they used to have to stop recording a lot of times because the buffaloes would scrape their horns up against the air conditioning unit and, and ruin the recording. <laughs> At the back of the book is a critical discography in which we're really taken through Johnny Cash's uh, long recording career and uh, given some sense of, of, of his growth as an artist. And also for those of us that don't know a whole lot about him or don't have much of anything on our shelves, it gives us some sense of, of where we should go uh, in order to really uh, experience the, the uh, depth and breadth of his, uh, of his artistry. What would your suggestions be? Well, I'll tell you, the, 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 the thing is, is that Johnny Cash made literally hundreds of records. Uh, there's a book that's about 700 pages long that just catalogs every recording he made. So it can be overwhelming. Um, if I was going to give someone 
advice on where to start listening to Johnny Cash, I would go to a few places in his career. I mean, I would begin with the Sun singles. Um, there's a collection of, of all of his Sun recordings, which really just lay down, you know, the, the blueprint for everything he would ever, <clears throat> ever, ever record. Uh, so I would go there. I would also listen to uh, the first of his American recordings with Rick Rubin, which came out in 1994, um, which is him covering both his own songs as well as the songs of lots of other songwriters. Um, I would listen to... There's all kinds of collections. I mean, there was a great period in the, in the 60s where he did a whole series of concept albums, um, albums based around one theme, you know. Uh, he did a great record just all about trains. Um, and he did one that was all about the plight of the Native Americans called Bitter Tears, which is an incredible album. Uh, I would listen to that. The other thing I would do is there's a, a, a new collection. It's a, it's a five-CD collection, but it's all the outtakes of recordings that he made in the last ten years of his life, things that were never released, different versions of songs he did by Neil Young and Tom Petty, as well as some of his own songs, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, lots of people. And that is a, a really remarkable document, and it has some great, great music on it. Also included in that is a, is a gospel record that he recorded in the early 90s and never released. Hmm. That would be a start. Something else which uh, was real eye-opening to me is I would not have guessed that Johnny Cash had uh, as much presence as he did uh, in film. There's a whole chapter of this book devoted to just important moments uh, in Johnny Cash's film work. There's a lot there, actually. Yeah, there is. He did a lot of cameos. He also did some very bizarre uh, parts, you know, in uh, in sort of uh, uh, late 50s, early 60s B-movies. Um, maybe one of his most famous performances was in, was in an episode of Columbo, which I remember seeing as a kid and, and, and just thinking it was the strangest thing in the world and rewatched recently and thought, you know, he was a pretty good actor. Um, so there are, there are all kinds of places to see him in film. Um, none of them are necessarily the best movies ever made, but, uh, but, he, but he sure did play some interesting parts. Right. I think one other thing that, that bears uh, mentioning is that uh, as we are given a f- fair amount of, of, of his thoughts, I mean, Johnny Cash's own thoughts uh, in, in a couple of, of important interviews, which, which he did, we're, we're given this uh, fascinating picture of a man who was uh, so earthy and yet a, a man of some very profound ideas and able to to really express himself in in ways that really sort of haunt you. Uh, that that's that's a, a very very rare gift which he had. Well, I'm I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because Johnny Cash was was an incredibly intelligent, intellectual, perceptive person. His music was very plain spoken, and his language was very plain spoken, and his demeanor was as well. But this was a guy who was a real thinker and whose music and thoughts are invested with a great deal of, of intellect and intelligence. You know, one of the things that I was told when I went to interview him was, don't talk about politics. That, that wouldn't be a good thing to, to raise. But right then was about the time that America was, was almost going to go to war in Iraq, and I asked him about it. And this was a guy who was, who was ill, who, uh, who wasn't feeling well. And the level of 
intelligence that he spoke about the impending war and the dangers of that war were were really really incredible and I'll I'll, I'll say now that you know everything he said came true the book is cash by the editors of Rolling Stone. It features a foreword by Roseanne Cash, and uh, the book is published by Crown Publishers and edited by Jason Fine. Jason Fine, congratulations on a job well done. I enjoyed speaking with you today on The Morning Show.